everybody. Welcome back to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, from this podcast, I'm living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And I'm super excited to welcome back Mike T. Nelson to the podcast today. Another amazing conversation around metabolic flexibility, ultimately a concept he calls physiological flexibility. How ultimately do you get your body to be more adaptive to the stress you subjected to? We're all being subjected to stress. And my definition of health is simply the ability to adapt to impose demand. And Mike and I talk a lot about that today, not only how to adapt to performance, but maybe how to create your performance regime, ultimately how we should be eating to both maximize performance, maximize body composition, and live our longest and greatest life. I know you're going to love this podcast with Mike T. Nelson. If you do listen all the way to the end, we have some amazing information to share with you today. Today's podcast is brought to you by Real Mushrooms, a longtime incredible sponsor of the show. Real Mushrooms has the, the greatest mushrooms on the planet. Realmushrooms.com slash Ben will save you 30% off your very first order. And if you want to use the code MUSCLE, if you're a returning customer, that'll save you 20% off both incredible offers from our friends over at Real Mushrooms. I've personally vetted the products. I personally use them. And I highly suggest that if you're not already using mushrooms and adding mushrooms into your routine, it's something that you should definitely, definitely jump on while you still can. Enjoy the podcast with Mike T. Nelson. Listen all the way to the end. Thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate you making the time. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. really appreciate it. Always yeah. good to chat with you. Yeah, I think we can drive some people into those courses from here because I think a lot of people who listen are coaches. And even if they're not coaches, I think there's an opportunity uh, for people who ultimately want to understand both metabolic flexibility and the flex diet process and then the physiological flexibility. Like both of those seem to go very much hand in hand. I haven't gone through the flex diet cert, uh, cert yet, but I've gone through a lot of the physiological flexibility course. Um, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about those two? Yeah, so the, the flex diet is more based on the problem I was looking to solve is I looked around at a lot of gyms, kind of even more like a CrossFit type gym. And, you know, a lot of them have gotten definitely a lot better with uh, coaching and programming over the past few years. And I always ask them like, hey, what do you do for nutrition? And they'd always kind of like stare at me funny. And I'm like, but aren't most of your clients like body composition, maybe secondary performance? They're like, yeah. And they always kind of like shake their head and look down and like, well, you know, we do 30 day challenges and I'm like, okay, so yeah. one month you're doing a 30 day fasting next month is 30 day keto and then 30 day whole 30. I'm like, how's that work for you? They're Nobody like, has any systems or processes, man. Nobody no. gets it. Nope. They're like, they're so confused. I'm like, Hmm. Yeah. So what I wanted to do is have, there's usually one trainer there that's pretty interested in nutrition. So my goal was, okay, can we take one person who maybe manages a gym of say 150, 200 members let's say half opt in to do nutrition, right? So conservatively, 100 people. Can I set up a system where it's based on research, it's a flexible approach using metabolic flexibility, and just literally have one person manage all those people on like a literally a semi-customized approach? Yep. Um, so that's what I did. I said, okay, here's my top eight interventions from you know protein, fats, carbohydrates, meat, micronutrition, sleep, et cetera. And then I initially, I arranged them just based on physiologic response because I'm like, you know, being a physiologist, I'm like, okay, this makes sense. But then I realized, as I'm sure you've realized working with clients is, uh-oh, just because like sleep has a lot of physiologic importance, I would rather almost at this point pound my head through a wall than have another discussion about sleep with a client yep. unless they're particular asking me about, you know, what should I do? So sleep has... It's a very hard intervention to do just because at the end of the day, it comes down to, oh, bro, 
that like one to two hours that I sit and watch Netflix at night, you're telling me not to do that and I should go to bed. Kind of, you know, there's things we can do to try to increase your quality of sleep, but it was a much harder conversation than say, okay, here, I want you to eat more protein. Here's about how much, here's what it looks like. And they're like, oh, okay. Like the protein thing was something that was much more doable. So I took the physiologic impact times the client's ability to change and just said, okay, this is your coaching leverage. So you're respecting the physiologic important big rocks and then also what is easier for the client to do. So when I ranked them on that scale, like protein came out to be number one. Sleep <laughs> came out to be number eight. Wow. So that way when you're a coach, you can go through and say, okay, <clears throat> here's a big rock we want you to start with. And you can just walk them through the program. So it's set up as you'll learn context by a big picture. You'll learn the intricacies of each intervention. So if people have questions, you can answer it. And then I give them five specific action items for each one. So they know specifically what to do. And then they present the client with, okay, here's option A or option B. The client rates them between a one to 10, just old school motivational interviewing. And then boom, you have your, your change. Track that for a couple of weeks, see how they're doing. And then maybe do another one that's similar, maybe move on to the next one. So it was giving them the big picture of context, giving them the background and the information so they can answer questions, and then having it set up in an actual system so that they could use software, spreadsheet, whatever, and they can track where each person is and see how they're, they're doing from that. And that's brilliant. And I think... Uh, gosh, I think everyone out there would have uh, utility in applying that to their system, right? Is is I didn't, I never thought about breaking it down in that way. Is like there's there's only so many interventions that are actually going to move the needle for people, right? And then so having them uh, kind of subjectively rate on their likelihood to follow that uh, intervention is that basically what we're getting at? Yeah. So like if number yeah. one's protein, I have five specific action items all related to protein. Right. So the coach will look at them and, and look at all five and be like, okay, I'm working with Bob. Hmm. I think Bob's going to like uh, number one and like number three. So the coach is going to go to Bob and say, hey, Bob, we've got two options. You can do this or you can do that. I want you to rate them on a one to 10 scale of how doable you think that is. Right. Just motivational interviewing. Yep. Like, ah, you know, first one, that's like a seven. The second one, ah, it's pretty easy. That's like an eight. Great. You're going to do this one. We're going to track you for two weeks. Your goal is to hit 90% compliance. And then we're going to look, how's your body comp? How's your performance? What are your goals? And if you hit that and you're making progress, cool. You can stay there if you want, or you can move on to the next item. If you didn't hit it at around a 90% compliance, we know it's a compliance issue, right? We probably got the right thing to do. You've agreed to it. You said, yep, I can do this thing. So let's have a chat about, you know, what happened. Like, you know, the more the mechanics of it. Oh, great. Next two weeks go by. Cool. You crushed that. You got 90%. Awesome. Let's move on to the next item then. And I mean, we even had Coach Catalyst design software where we put all 40 action items in there. So you can just literally have a list of clients. Here's all your 40 action items. You can go, okay, I talk to this person. It's this one. Talk to this person. It's that one. Pick which one you want. And it'll automatically go through and track uh, compliance for you. So you could have a spreadsheet like a dashboard and look at all your clients and go, all right, ooh, Bob's crushing it. Jeff's doing good. Oops, Betty's at like 70% compliance. Maybe I should send her a note and see what's going on, right? So you can have this high-level overview. Everyone is working on the things that they need to work on, but each person is a little bit different too because we know that even though eating more protein is the goal, 
Some people can do that pretty easy. Some people like math. Some people like simple stuff. Some people eat a high protein breakfast and you realize they had an egg, like a single egg. And to them, that was a high protein breakfast, right? So everyone's a little bit different. So it kind of respects where they are, but trying to get them all to a similar level. As far as your interventions for compliance, like if we, if we see a client who's always kind of falling short in compliance, is that the intervention is just simply to ask them and say, hey, on a scale of one yeah. to 10, how likely are you to follow it? Yeah. So what you're doing ahead of time is you're getting them to buy into mm-hmm. the thing that they're most likely to do. And that's probably the biggest mistake I made was, oh, this physiology stuff, I got this figured out. Ah, Bob, you just need to eat more protein. Right. Suck it up. Eat more protein. Come on, Bob. What's wrong with you? Right. I didn't get sort of approval and buy-in from Bob ahead of time. And it, it's just like if you if you back the wild animal into a corner, they get really angry, right? So I felt like early on, I was just backing clients into the corner and yelling at them about protein, right? They never opted in. They never said what they can do. I unfortunately <laughs> didn't have many conversations with them about what their life was, was like. So by getting them to buy in, yeah, ideally you want them to rate an eight, a nine, or a 10 on the scale that they're saying, yep, I can do that thing. So now I kind of have a verbal agreement with you too, that I'm going to kind of feel bad if I let Ben down because ah, I told him I can do this thing and I want to reach my goal. He gave me the information. So they, they have a little bit more skin in the game. And if it doesn't happen, then just I literally email clients and go, hey, I was just checking your compliance and wanted to know what was up. <laughs> and because especially online, it's like, who knows? Maybe they had a stressful week. Maybe they had something bad happen. Who knows, right? And then from there, you can see, okay, maybe let's try this again, or let's maybe scale it back and let's try something uh, different. But at least you can have a conversation with them. And if someone's doing really well and they're crushing it, just send them a great note like, hey, looks like you're doing great. Keep it up. If you have any questions, let me know, right? So you can give attention to people that kind of need it and then just kind of, you know, praise however you want to word that to people that are, are doing well, instead of, you know, most people, it's like, oh, you didn't hit the challenge for keto day 29. What happened? Oh, I just, I don't like bacon that much. You know, you're assuming that they're all bought into this one thing, which maybe they are, maybe they aren't. And those conversations are much, I think, harder. And then they get confused because they're like, well, wait a minute. Like we were doing keto last month and now we're, we're having carbohydrates this month. Like, wasn't keto the thing that was going to help me, but now it's not. I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It gets confusing. It, totally. And it, it gets the, the client kind of even more uh, unaware of what actually is going to work. Cause keto may actually very well work for a month. Oh, sure. you, you shift their diet and they're like, I don't know where I'm supposed to start. And then oftentimes causes a discouraging perspective on things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And like I said, it does, I don't really, I'm kind of agnostic to what intervention works. Yeah. And everyone's going to be a little bit different. You know, I've had clients that do very low carb, have done a keto type approach, work great for them. I have other clients that were crushing 530 grams of carbohydrates a day. You know, everyone's going to be a little bit different on that that spectrum. What other things are on that list of eight? You don't have to go through all of them, obviously, but we can go through a few. Uh, So second would be some type of fasting. And usually my preference would be slowly working up to a single 19 to 24 hour fast, probably once per week. Uh, the reason I like that is if most people can do it, I mean, unless their stress is like super crazy, then they have other <laughs> issues they need to worry about. Uh, most people for body comp and performance, it's going to be ideal. You're going to cut out a bunch of calories. Most people like it because it's relatively easy to do. Again, as long as you have a little bit of a transition period there, because they're like, oh, 
I don't have to stop and eat today? Oh, wow. Okay, that's, that's pretty easy. Um, from the physiology side, you could come back the next day and have a very higher carbohydrate day. There's no downregulation in carbohydrate metabolism, which is primarily mediated through a PDH enzyme. So if you did a ketogenic approach, which definitely can work, you would have to allow a transition period uh, back to getting that super high end of carbohydrate metabolism back because you'll chop off you know, three to 10% of speed and power off the top end of your program. Now, if they're not training for speed and power, it may not matter. So who cares, right? But if that is one of their goals, again, just something to be aware of. With fasting, you don't have to worry about that. You can literally upregulate fat metabolism on like, say, Tuesday, the day they're fasting. And the next day, just literally come back with two, three, 400 grams of carbohydrates, and they're going to be fine. You don't really need to make a lot of changes with it. Um, Is there anything you're doing before fasting to ensure the body is more likely to use uh, fat for fuel rather than yeah. glycogen or protein? Yeah. So the biggest thing I found with that was having a transition period because years ago I was looking for something that I'm like, okay, so most people need to upregulate their use of fat as a fuel. There's good studies. Gadecki did a study. Helges did a study in 1999. I did one study that showed if we just pull people off the street who are metabolically healthy and exercise, not high-end athletes, and we put them on a metabolic cart and go, okay, how well are you able to use fat during low to moderate intensity exercise? It's variable between 23 to 93%. So huge variation. Some people are really good at doing that. Other people, really horrible at doing that. And what I found with fasting is, yeah, you could white knuckle it for 19 to 24 hours and you could get through it, but the aftermath was not very good, right? You tended to way overeat, which kind of destroys the whole point of fasting. And I made this mistake. So like 10 years ago, did some training and I'm like, all right, I'm going to do fasting. I'm convinced that this is the way to go for a day. I got to around 10, 11 a.m. I ran across the street to a Chinese buffet and was there for like two to three hours. I'm like, no, this is a horrible idea. I don't like this. But I had been used to eating every three to four hours yeah. uh, while I was awake. So for me to go to 24 hours without any food, that would be like, you know, someone coming to my garage gym and be like, hey, bro, never deadlifted. Awesome. Let's put 405 on the bar, right? And you know, <laughs> 10 sets. Uh, someone like yourself, you're going to be fine. 10 sets right. of 10 German volume training. Here right. we go, right? <laughs> Most people are not going to be able to do that, right. but we can drop it down to 135, 225, 315, whatever. We can scale it to wherever your capacity was. So the mistake I made was assuming that that hard transition was going to work. And I went, oh, shoot. So then I said, okay, so I'm going to take Monday, let's say is my fasting date. And I'm going to push my fast out each week, only once per week, by about two hours. So if I could easily do 12 hours overnight, overnight's usually the easiest time period. The next week on Monday, I'm just going to push breakfast out by two hours. Cool. I did 14 hours. Awesome. So following Monday again, I'm going to try to go out by two hours again. So I'm going to push breakfast to lunch. For whatever reason I found if people skip breakfast, they got mad at me, but I told them just eat breakfast at your lunch and skip your lunch. They were happy. So I don't know why people like breakfast. Um, and then about six day weeks total time, most people could easily do a 19 to 24 hour fast. And then what I do to monitor compliance is how did it go? And then tell me what your meal was after you finished your fast. That meal should look pretty much identical to all your other meals. Right. And if that meal all of a sudden doubles in size or looks crazy, despite what you told me, I'm thinking you probably 
pushed it a little too hard on your fast. So I'm going to actually back you up until you get used to it. And then we'll go forward from there. Love but it, I found man. with that adaptation period, that made a huge difference. Yeah. There's so much I want to ask within that. And and I think we yeah. can probably talk two, two hours on that. Um, so where my brain goes with that, one meal a day has become a big trend in, in many communities. And right. I'm curious how you feel about that. Because that's actually what I find with a lot of clients is um, people will follow the, the one meal a day protocol, but their meal is just enormous. And there's kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of a lot of data that suggests having huge boluses of fat, huge boluses of carbohydrates, even if it's just once a day, isn't the best idea. So I've seen data that says decreasing the eating window you know, to as little as four hours. Um, if you have the same amount of calories in four hours as you do spaced over 12, you actually get better fat loss by eating just in that four-hour window. And, but I've also seen other data that suggests if you eat too much at one meal, uh, it, can be neg- it can negatively impact inflammation, LPS, uh, obviously glucose tolerance maybe. Tell me what your, your perspective is on, on both ends of that. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the one meal per day, right? Can you find people that it works with? Absolutely. You just people who are crazy busy and only have time to eat in the evening. Uh, reason I'm not a big fan of it, uh, the one pro is that you are less likely to overeat at that one meal. And even if you overeat, right, you're probably not going to make up for like all your day's calories in one meal. I, right. Again, I've met people who could probably do that, I'm sure. But the average person, probably not. So from a sheer lowering of calories, could it work? Yeah, definitely could yeah. work. Um, but some of what you said is eh, some of the markers that happen after that are kind of scary looking, right? So blood glucose goes super high. Yeah. Uh, fatty acids go high. There's some stuff looking at, um, uh, we used flow meter dilation when I was in the lab to look at blood vessel function. So after a high fat meal, you can see blood vessel function isn't quite as good for a period of time. So there's some, I would say, potential negatives from that. And especially as people are getting older, um, as you know, you're missing those chances to spike uh, muscle protein synthesis. We know that that's going to be downregulated, especially as you get older. And you probably don't need to go crazy, but you talk to experts like Dr. Stu Phillips and others, three to five meals per day, you know, of high protein, you're probably going to be pretty good. So I think you're missing out on some of those times to uh, increase uh, protein synthetic response in order to try to hold on to as much uh, muscle as possible too. Is there an inherent problem with consuming? Like I know some people are consuming two pounds of meat at a time or one pound of meat at a time. Is there an inherent problem in your um, best understanding in doing that? Not that I know of offhand. I mean, I haven't seen any negative data on that per se. I mean, people always think like, oh, it's got to be straining on your your kidneys and all that kind of stuff. But We've got some pretty good data on high protein diets so far, and they generally appear to be pretty safe. Yeah, you know, GFR, like uh, your markers of kidney work, uh, will go up, creatinine can go up. Uh, but when we look at actual damage to the kidneys via like microalbumin, we don't really see a lot of damage per se. Uh, we do see in people who seek protein that their kidneys are a little bit larger, right? So just like your muscles responding to work, they're probably getting a little bit hypertrophied from the work. We don't necessarily see markers of kidney damage per se. You could make some arguments of maybe super high amounts of fat depending upon the cut of meat, maybe, but some of that data is also very transient too, like I was suggesting with uh, blood flow function and stuff. We don't really know what happens outside of those couple windows because it hasn't really been investigated as much. Yeah, one thing you mentioned in there was blood vessel health. I think that's a super interesting topic and I didn't realize that would be something you you would explore when it comes to you know, consumption of certain types of foods, um, what is negatively impacting blood vessel health? And, and do you have a standard protocol to start improving blood vessel health? I don't know if that's something you want to talk about. 
Yeah. I don't really know, to be honest, because if you if you look at a lot of the acute studies, it's it's kind of scary. <laughs> you know, you look at it like the one study was looking at, I think it was a McDonald's meal and uh, equivalent calories from other foods. You didn't see quite as much of a change. What you're worried about is damaging uh, potentially to a structure called the glycocalyx, which is kind of helping control blood flow. Um, see, I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I My guess is... We know that that generally tracks with metabolic health. If you're more of a metabolic train wreck, odds are your blood vessels are also not going to be doing so well. So I think of it as more of an overall uh, systems approach. And then you get even more esoteric with exercise in terms of super high load, you know, 1RM, powerlifting type stuff all of the time that you've got your heart under this massive afterload. It's got to kick out against this huge amount of pressure versus other people on the other end of the spectrum who are ultra endurance events, especially cyclists, um, where you have the other issue where the heart wall can actually get a little bit thinner. Um, so I usually think of more of the cardiac uh, as a system in terms of response to exercise than just blood vessel health itself. But yeah, it's, it's also the marker we use in the lab was what's called flow mediated dilation, where we would take a cuff, we would occlude say your forearm, and we would image the brachial in your arm. And because we would occlude for so long, you would, boom, you'd hit a button and the cuff would open. You have all this massive blood flow that runs in. You have a shear stress on the vessel wall, which causes it to dilate. And that was what we used as a marker to determine uh, endothelial dysfunction. And then sometimes we would compare that to what's called a chemical dilation, which would be we give patients nitroglycerin, which if you've ever had that, it's a crazy experience. Right. So people are like, oh, we want to create this ultimate, you know, pump supplement and dilate all of our blood vessels. And it's like, no, you don't. You would be passed out on the floor because I remember lying in the bed. I was a subject for one of them. And I'm like, do, do, do. And all of a sudden you could just feel your pressure just just drop. And I'm like, if there was a fire alarm that went off right now and I had to get out of this bed, I would be passed out on the floor. Right. No question. And a couple minutes after that, I got just a massive crushing headache, too. So, um, so in those studies, that's primarily what they're looking at to measure it. Again, the downside is that's kind of a super physiologic measure, right? Just like doing a, an IV study to look at glucose and insulin, right? Or what's called a clamp study, you know? So some of these things we push people to the high end of the super physiologic range. And it's interesting because we can see differences there, but do those differences really correspond to someone who's not at those ranges? Um, that's where it gets a little bit messy. So one of the things you said in there that I think is super interesting to explore is people you pull off the street are anywhere between 23 and 93% fat utilization. Yeah. Rest. And I, actually, when I texted you the other day, that was kind of the topic I really wanted to dive into is what are the best practices? If I want, let's, this is where this question came from. I had someone in the gym this week who was competing. He was four days out and he was kind of not in the best shape. And, you know, he had a few pounds to lose. And he said to me, hey, if you had, you know, uh, five days to a competition and you wanted to lose the maximum amount of fat, what would be your best practices to ensure your body is you ultimately what you didn't know, but what it, to ensure your body is using the greatest amount of fat at rest, what would you, what would be the protocol? What would be like the day-to-day -day protocol? And that really got me thinking. I was like, okay, I do this and I do that and I do that. I'm like, okay, this would be a great question to ask Dr. Mike. So I'm curious what you, I don't know if, if you can answer that question from a context yeah. of like, hey, you got five days to go. Or just in general, like, hey, I want to use more fat at rest. 
Yeah, the short answer is if you have five days to go, you're just going to have to suffer a lot. <laughs> sure. But bodybuilders are willing to do that, right? Yeah, the, 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 yeah. that's like a prerequisite, right? Yeah. So that's no problem. I mean, you're looking at higher protein-ish, you know, pretty much super low calories, a fair amount of movement, right? Because as you well know, your body is going to... Low intensity, right? Like Probably, but you still want yeah. some weight training because you don't want to sure. lose any muscle, right? Yeah. And to me, that circumstances, you're all looking at just energy management, right? Because right. you've seen the debate, right? It's oh, low, low intensity cardio. That's the best thing. No, no, no. Don't do too much low intensity. You're going to lose all your muscle. You got to do this super ultra high intensity and that's the way to go. And I mean, both of them can work, but at the end of the day, it's like, what can you manage for quality output, right? Most people can't handle a lot of uh, weight training a lot of high intensity interval work that's at a high level of output on super low calories for long periods of time, right? You're just you're not going to do so well. Again, yeah. that's not your goal per se, because you're not performance based, but. So what physiological markers would you look at, Mike? Would you, would you look at, would you measure cortisol? Would you measure HRV? Would you measure respiration rate and CO2? Like, is there any like objective markers we could start looking at to, I mean, other than obviously doing a metabolic card? Um, to, to kind of try to sway our body more toward using fat for fuel? Yeah, so markers, again, metabolic heart would be best. Uh, you could look at total metabolic rate by using like doubly labeled water. That's probably how they would do it in the lab. So they just basically kind of put a tracer on water and try to look at overall metabolic rate. Usually in that short period of time, resting metabolic rate is probably not going to change a whole lot, to be honest. Uh, but your NEAT, so non-exercise and activity thermogenesis, is going to fall like a stone, But it, which, again, you can compensate for by more walking, more movement, yeah. low-intensity cardio, things of that nature. Um, I mean, I only work with a handful of physique athletes and have you know, off and on for like 10 years. Um, I've always measured heart rate variability in them. And pretty much, I was just talking to my buddy Ryan about this last weekend, and pretty much across the board, what you'll see is even if they're getting ready for a show and they're doing it in a very intelligent manner, they've got plenty of time, they're not doing really crazy shit, you'll see over time that their HRV gets lower and lower and lower, right? So it gets more and more sympathetic, which is kind of what you'd expect, right? Your body's under a lot amount of stress. And then at some point, literally within like a couple days or sometimes a day, they'll go massively parasympathetic. And the first time I saw this, I was like, what the hell? This must be an error. Right? Like, what does this person's an outlier? It's weirdo. And then it started happening with everyone. And you ask me, like, oh, how do you feel? Oh, man, I don't feel so good. I feel really tired. You know, I just don't have much energy. And what you see is it makes sense if you think about your body from a survival standpoint. Your body's saying, hey, you're having me do all this crazy training. You're having me do this on very less calories. I'm still trying to move. You're monitoring my step counts. We don't want your knee to go off a cliff. I'm trying to sleep. I've got sleep disturbances. And your body's saying, yeah, I'm more stressed, more stressed, more stressed. Okay, screw you. I am going to be so parasympathetic, right? I'm going to put on the brake as hard as I can because basically I want to make you lie on the couch and drool on yourself because if you keep going, it's not going to be very pretty. And what you'll see is they'll stay parasympathetic all the way through their show. And then after my little rule was, okay, until your HRV normalizes, we can then maybe have a discussion about when your next show is. But I don't even want to discuss it until you can show me that your nervous system has normalized. Because people think, oh, I finished my show. I'm great. Woohoo! I'm awesome. It's like, well, you feel good for a day. And they're like, why am I so tired? 
right? Because all that fatigue is accumulated and you can see it in their score. And oddly enough, when they're that high, when they get a little bit more sympathetic, it starts dropping. They're like, oh, you know, I felt a little better today. But wait, my HRV score went down. It says I'm more sympathetic. It's like, yeah, that's what we want, right? We want to start getting that response back. It's like if you've ever gone to the gym and you've just been like super tired, eh, like performance isn't really good. They get kind of stuck in that state. So the reason it's useful to monitor that too is I've had a couple of clients where they hit that parasympathetic point like three months out and you're going, oh shit, this isn't going <laughs> right. to be good, right? It, it's going to happen. So my goal was, can we get that to happen as close to your actual show date as we can? If it's happening three or four months out, I, I probably screwed up and we probably were a little bit too aggressive. And now we have to decide what do we do? You know, what kind of cost do you want to pay in order to get to that point? Have you drawn a correlation between um, high HRV, low HRV and um, metabolic flexibility? So the ability to utilize fat at rest? Yeah. So amazingly, there hasn't been too much work on that, which is one of the goals that I was trying to do when I was doing my PhD is in theory, you would assume that the more parasympathetic you are, that that may be a surrogate marker for the use of fat. Right. Cause if we just go back and we just think real simply for people listening or like, okay, exercise. Great. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to lift some weights today. Awesome. And we monitor what happens with your heart rate variability. Let's say you're hooked up to a metabolic cart. So we know what fuels you're using. What we see is as heart rate goes up, as you do more and more intense work, heart rate variability goes down, right? You're becoming more sympathetic, which is what you want when you're lifting. And we see that your body will then transition via the crossover effect to using more carbohydrates. Hopefully during rest period, it'll kind of, you know, switch back the other way. So we know that that, that happens, but there hasn't been much data that's looked at uh, over a training, let's say, period. Does HRV give us a marker related to fat use or not? So in the example I had is someone who's parasympathetically overreached. Are they really using more fat or is it just their nervous system is so overloaded that it's really just trying to shut down their body? And fuel usage doesn't really change at all. So we know acutely, it definitely changes. Chronically, surprisingly enough, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, do you draw a correlation between CO2 tolerance and uh, obviously improved aerobic fitness, thereby maybe improved better, improved um, fat utilization at rest? Maybe. Uh, I heard you mention that question once a while ago on the podcast, and that set me spinning for like a couple of months. And so then I started thinking, I'm like, whoa, what the hell is even CO2 tolerance, right? It's like, it's one of those words where you say it and I'm like, I, I know what you're saying, mm. but, and there's definitely something there, right? Because we know as you exercise, there is a component to exercise sucks, but I'm kind of able to work through that versus just not as experienced doing it. So I was off for about seven weeks, uh, kiteboarding, doing some other stuff. So I did aerobic training, did some running, that type of thing, but I haven't been on the Concept2 rower. So I got on this morning, did my row, and it sucked horribly. It sucked really bad. My performance for an RPE of seven wasn't that far off. So performance-wise, was pretty close. But there is something, I think, whether it's a mental shift, that when you are used to it, it feels a little bit better. And we know from some stuff, you know, you can look at the Buteco stuff. You can look at, uh, I know you had Greg Wells on here, I believe. And 
I think there's something associated with the ability to buffer some of that, but it gets really messy because then you're looking at, is it local? Is it local to the muscle, right? So you're getting into the bore effect of, yeah, maybe locally we do want more CO2 because that's going to drive off the exchange of O2 and get oxygen into the actual tissue itself. Does that mean my expiratory CO2 goes up? Well, we know that that happens under high level exercise, right? When we look at the RER ratio of oxygen to CO2, once that gets above one, we know that you're classically kind of your anaerobic. You're getting rid of more CO2 than you have before. So your ratio gets uh, flipped. That normally corresponds to 100% carbohydrate use. Other people will then argue that, well, once you're over one, it doesn't matter. Why? Because you're hyperventilating. If we just start hyperventilating, we automatically start getting rid of more CO2. So it's a, a default of the fact that we're hyperventilating has nothing to do with uh, CO2 retention, which would be kind of Dempsey's work from University of Wisconsin. So all the answer is, I don't know. I bought a friggin' metabolic card and a moxie system to try, <laughs> to try to see if I could figure out what are the correlations between it? And I just bought another device to measure um, breath volumes because then you get into, okay, how much air are you exchanging in and out, right? So some people under heavy exercise will start breathing really fast, but the amount of air they're bringing in and out actually goes down. You've got other more highly trained athletes where their respiratory rate goes up and they're actually able to literally move more volumes of air. So maybe the ratio doesn't matter. Maybe it's the volume of air and CO2 that's actually exchanged, which would be more my argument. So all oh, that's a really long-winded thing to say, I think there's something there. And then I've also thought that we should be able to see a transfer between uh, breath techniques and aerobic performance, right? So if we just we hang out and we do a breath hold, right? Metabolic rate is still running. So CO2 is going to go up right? Because your tissues are still off-gassing CO2. If you get better at a breath hold, does that mean you can push a little bit harder during exercise when those CO2 levels are going up again? Is that a physiologic effect? Is it just pure mental practice because Patrick, you know what it's like to suck? Yeah. Patrick <laughs> McEwen um, always recommends breath holds before the before a workout to right. improve. So, so he says the spleen is going to contract, release more red blood cells, improve your oxygen carrying capacity from those breath holds. He said he's seen data on that. Yeah, I've been trying to find the data. I should probably email him. It, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Yeah. I'm like, it would be super interesting. I mean, uh, free divers have talked about a similar thing. When they get to a certain pressure, the theory is because of the pressure of the breath hold, that that combination allows them to, you know, go a little bit longer. Maybe I have no idea. Yeah. Have you connected with Peter Litchfield? No, I haven't. Who's that? Um, so he's apparently the the guy, probably the best in the world as far as um, being the number one authority on breath work. I think he's out in Southern California. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So uh, I forget what university he's at, but he runs a master's level program on uh, performance breathing, on physiological benefits, for physiological effects of breathing. Um, so he seems to be the guy and I'm working on getting him on the show, answer these questions. So, yeah. you, know, you know, as far as a combination between, you know, getting you in a room with him and, and Brian McKenzie and, and, um, Patrick McEwen, like, I think you guys can make a lot of progress in answering these questions because everyone seems to work in silos, right? Mike, you know, it. yeah, it's like, yeah. 
this guy's great at breath work, but he doesn't really understand the mechanics. And this guy's this guy's great at mechanics, but doesn't really understand the physiological implications. And getting you guys all together in a room is going to be the ideal scenario to to kind of get to the bottom of all these things. And ultimately, I'm just trying to ask the questions so you guys ultimately have some y'all land in the same uh, kind of beneficial place. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they'd be super fascinated. I mean, I'm putting out the last module for the physiologic flexibility cert, and I mean, I've been looking at O2 CO2 stuff for like 10 years now. And I just did another recent dive into the literature and I have no, I, I mean, I think I found something that's useful, but the hard part is that normal oxic, so normal oxygen, we can either be high oxygen or we could be low oxygen, right? Mm-hmm. So if I give you a tube of hundred percent pure oxygen and you breathe that during exercise, it doesn't increase your performance, right? Right. So other people would say, well, maybe we need to spike it with more CO2, maybe, but then you get into, okay, well, does that oxygen get into the cells? Actually it doesn't because there's no change in pressure. There's no driving force. Oh, cool. So let's look at exercise in a hyperbaric chamber, which they've actually done. And in some of the data, it shows that it did actually increase performance. So initially I'm like, oh, that's cool. But then when they exercise a normal oxic, so just atmosphere, the, the effect went away. So mm-hmm. it didn't transfer. You're like, oh, crap. So I could make someone better at exercising in a hyperbaric chamber, but when they go to compete, that didn't have any effect. Right. The caveat is if you're at altitude. So if you're even the studies on altitude training, because altitude will change your pressure. If you look at the randomized controlled trials done on altitude training, they're actually kind of disappointing, unfortunately. The only benefit we can say for sure is if you compete at altitude, training at altitude in some form, definitely going to be beneficial, right? So, you know, teams that compete at altitude probably have an advantage. Is that the best way to then train? It's really split because you would have to have people train in a big chamber and change the pressure and the O2 and potentially CO2 concentration and not tell them what you were doing. Because by definition of going to high altitude, going to low altitude, you have a placebo effect that's built in because they know where they're at. Hmm. Um, So if you look at those studies, which is really not many at all, I don't know if there's really a physiologic effect there or not, to be honest. So. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you know doing it one time in a hyperbaric chamber doesn't make sense. But if you're saying that doing it repeatedly, even at altitude, isn't isn't showing huge benefit when you come back to uh, sea level, it's still not showing a benefit. That's surprising. Yeah, the caveat with that is that there are some studies that do show a benefit. Now, granted, they're not placebo controlled, and when they've looked at some of the variables, there are things that definitely change, and that's where it gets fuzzy. Right. Because if I go exercise, let's say I go to Denver, right. And I exercise at, you know, mile high stadium. The downside is my performance is going to go down, right. My adaptations will go up, Mm -hmm. right. Red blood cell mass will change. uh, Plasma volume will go up. So now you're at, okay, do the adaptations that I get from it, even with a little bit of reduced training performance, is it still a net win? Right. Which is why they got into, okay, you should sleep high and train low. So if I train low, I get the higher amount of pressure via oxygen and my performance stays good. But now I'm sleeping low, so I have eight, 10 hours to try to accumulate some of these positive adaptations. And that's where the data, it gets kind of messy too, because then you're looking at uh, sleep changes 
And then some of the things are very transient, right? So plasma volume is super transient, right? So if you talk to people who have seen positive effects at altitude, like whether it's training low, sleeping high, whatever, they tend to last maybe one to two weeks, maybe is probably the period. So again, if you're a highly competitive athlete, ooh, that could be like a massive potential game changer. If you're the average person, yeah, I, I don't know if it's worth that trade-off, but mm-hmm. I, my gut feeling is that there's still something there because um, I had another client recently, we were just happened to be looking at her blood work that I looked with another MD. I'm scratching my head going, she looks like a cyclist on EPO, <laughs> like wow. massive red blood cell mass. Her doc's like, ah, she's fine. And so I sent it to another MD buddy of mine. I'm like, dude, this, this doesn't, doesn't look right. Um, her aerobic level was okay. She was primarily training for a powerlifting meet. And we had her do a sleep study. Well, she had sleep apnea. So she's beginning very apneic at night. Her body goes, oh my God, we're not getting oxygen. So we're going to upregulate all these other parameters that are going to push it up. So it's, yeah, it's confusing because there's definitely adaptations that take place. Do those adaptations confer a massive benefit in performance? Uh, I think possibly, but I don't think it's as, it wasn't nearly as clear cut as what I was, what I was hoping it would be. <laughs> right. It's never is right. No. Um, so come back to that question regarding, you know, maximizing fat loss, getting us toward 93%. Yes. Um, two things I just, we, we discussed cortisol a little bit. I'd love to go down that path, but also sure. go down the path of, uh, of insulin. So if you wanted to optimize control or, or, or fat loss, fat burning, fat oxidation at rest or throughout the day, what are your parameters when it comes to cortisol, when it comes to insulin? Are we just trying to keep cortisol down? Are we trying to make sure this, it cycles correctly? Like, so when, when my brain goes to, okay, we got this five days, how many times throughout the day should I intentionally be spiking cortisol? Meaning, should I train? Should I do high intensity stuff? Um, and then obviously there's, there's the consideration of insulin. Do I just kind of want to keep it low all the time? Maybe at the end of the day, I spike it to replenish glycogen so I can feel the next day. I'm curious what your perspective or your approach would be there. Yeah. I mean, I would say insulin probably lower is where I would go. The, the tricky part with that is physiologic levels of insulin are different than super physiologic levels. And then the amount of insulin release you would need for a like proteolytic effect to kind of prevent that from breaking out a muscle tissue, pretty small, right? So Stu Phillips has estimated that, you know, 20 grams of whey protein, you get enough insulin bump from that to pretty much halt any protein breakdown. So you could probably stay on the lower side and I think you would be okay. Um, cortisol, I would want to see it be more cyclic, right? If anyone has ever had low output cortisol and tried to perform, it sucks, right? Your performance is going to be not so good. So you would want it at that time because cortisol is a catabolic hormone, not in a bad way, but you're going to literally create things to use for energy. So I would imagine that uh, all things being considered, I probably want it a little bit higher, but that's also gets into it's a stress hormone. So how well can you recover from that? Right. If you've got someone, you know, the perfect world would be someone who just exercises, exercise performance is great. And then the rest of their day, they just kind of walk around and just kind of keep moving. Right. right. Not a lot of high intensity stuff, you know, save their energy for the the big things that are going to burn in energy that are going to try to keep as much muscle as possible. And just kind of chill and relax, you know, the rest of the day, do some light movement, get your knee, make sure you're moving. Um, probably something in that area is what 
what I would guess. Yeah. And would you intentionally spike the blood sugar around dinner time to replenish glycogen for the next day? Or would you want to keep that blood sugar so low going to sleep uh, to optimize growth hormone secretion? I don't know. I, if you would have asked me this a couple of years ago, I probably would have a different answer, but now there's some fascinating studies that if you deplete out liver glycogen, that may not change fuel usage all that much, right? So an overnight fast, your liver glycogen will definitely be low in the morning. Uh, however, if you start depleting out muscle glycogen, that appears to be a bigger signal to push you to use more fat, right? Your body is going, hey, we ran out of this kind of limited supply. And again, you can't drive muscle glycogen lower than maybe like 40%, right? So you can't drive it to zero. Um, but some of the studies where they've done purposely glycogen depletion, They've only given them a little bit of protein. They've had them come back to the lab the next day. Uh, one study I read about recently, uh, AMPK was elevated for five days. So it was massively elevated by them just going balls out on low muscle glycogen. Caveat is, I don't know how catabolic that is for muscle and it sucks and it's horrible to recover from. <laughs> so maybe from a fat use standpoint, maybe you gain a little bit, but... Like even just looking at HRV on people who've done that, like the cost that you pay in terms of energy and stress is really high, right? And so now your performance is definitely going to be lower if your muscle glycogen is lower. So now you're giving up performance. You have less of a signal to the muscle to be like, hey, hold on to this most of this tissue as you can because this crazy bastard's lifting really heavy stuff. So you don't really want to compromise your lifting performance either. But if it's a short, you know, five-day period, I may hedge my bets towards, you know, purposely dropping muscle glycogen, maybe going more that direction, knowing that it's a short period of time. Although I don't think I'd want to do that chronically. I just think you're going to suffer in terms of performance and potentially cost of muscle too. How much do you think growth hormone plays into all of it? So should we be, you know, obviously there's been some data that suggests, you know, um, keeping glucose down before or insulin and, and blood glucose down before bed, it's going to help growth sure. hormone secretion uh, pre-workout, not taking carbohydrates, going to help grow, uh, growth hormone secretion. Do you think it makes that much of a difference or is it something you wouldn't pay attention to? I don't think it makes that much of a difference if you're not using exogenous growth hormone and the spikes you're talking about are from acute exercise or nutrition interventions. Um, so again, Stu Phillips lab did some, uh, David West did a really cool study. You can look up hormone hypothesis and they showed that, yeah, you can change growth hormone by having them do like super heavy squats and they uh, exercise their right bicep. And then the next day they had a day off, I think. And then they came in the following day and did their left bicep, but did it first and then did heavy squats after. So a lot of stuff from Dr. Bill Kramer has rightfully shown that, you know, heavy compound exercises, a little bit of short rest, does that elevate growth hormone? Yep. Does it elevate testosterone? Yep. Now in that study, the right arm was exercised under the high hormone levels. The left arm was exercised under low hormone levels, but they were both volume matched and they were matched per individual. So you kind of eliminate a lot of variables. And what they've shown, I think they've actually even repeated the study, no difference in hypertrophy, fat loss, body comp, any difference between that. Now, if you measure those hormones, like uh, a study I referenced in the course is sauna can definitely give you 1700% more growth hormone, right? So on paper, you're like, holy shit, that's amazing. That's, that's gotta help. But 
it's so short in duration that at least as far as we can tell, it doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. Hmm. So I think these very acute spikes just don't really seem to move the needle at all. So if, they, um, if you did them every day for 30 days or something, would that still not have a benefit? Probably not. I mean, I think the hmm. study that Dr. West did was six or eight weeks, I think. Wow. Um, now, Ronsted, who's from Denmark, has argued that, you know, eh, they did a study and they showed a little bit of an effect. They used MRI to measure muscle hypertrophy. And then Stu Fields looked at his data and said the way you measured an MRI wasn't the best way. And when they measured a different way, you don't see any effect. <laughs> so it, it, it's still a little bit controversial. And it, it kind of goes against everything that I was programmed with. Right, because you think, oh my gosh, that amount has to have some effect, but I think growth hormone is more of a side effect of uh, changing fuel systems, more so than it definitely has other physiologic effects. But I think those effects are over a much more chronic level. So I'd be more interested for growth hormone release on how is their sleep, what is the quality of their sleep, than I would be trying to optimize it for training. What are some of your favorite interventions for managing blood glucose? So I know, I know there's, you know, GLUT1, GLUT4. Right. Um, so, many, so many people are, are um, training on a very, very consistent basis. And then, you know, they won't train for two or three days and they, they feel like they're getting fat after a couple of days. Is that because their body is so used to using um, the exercise to as its kind of main mechanism for disposing of glucose? I'm just curious what your, your thought processes are on that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think it's probably more just their perception of what they yeah. feel like more than anything else. Um, but we do know that there's GLUT1, there's GLUT4, there's what they call insulin-mediated effects, right? So when we pop up insulin, these little guys come out from the cell and they go out to the outside and they can whoop, just pull glucose in. Um, there's actually a huge effect, what's called non-insulin-mediated uptake, meaning that just muscle contraction alone, no insulin, can actually pull glucose out of the bloodstream. And there's some really interesting studies, granted they were on anesthetized dogs from many years ago, showing that a lot of the effect may actually be non-insulin mediated effects, right? So just getting up and going for a walk, just doing some movement, just doing some muscle contraction um, is pretty beneficial. Um, there's some stuff from Atkinson that looked at uh, depletion out of uh, blood glucose in terms of glycogen in the muscle and then just dramatically overfeeding these guys. And what you see is that in healthy individuals, the amount of oxidation for carbohydrates will actually pair quite well with carbohydrate overfeeding, uh, but fat oxidation does not. So in English, what that means is that if you're a pretty healthy person, we maybe deplete some glycogen, and then we give you like 300 grams of carbohydrates. Your body goes, oh wow, I'm gonna try to store some of that in glycogen, and then I got all this like fuel around, so I'm gonna switch to burning carbohydrates. So my carbohydrate oxidation is gonna go up dramatically. Unfortunately, if we overfeed you on fat, yeah, fat oxidation doesn't move at all. Your body goes, oh great, yeah, more fat, let's just you know get rid of it and kind of store it. So it's theoretical, there hasn't been a study that's looked at this in terms of body composition yet, but my bias is for overall macronutrients, higher protein, I'll probably err on a little bit higher carbohydrates because I want to fuel their training. I want that fueled primarily by glycogen. I may get the added benefit of maybe they're upregulating uh, carbohydrate oxidation and they're burning more carbohydrates. And then I'll leave fats lower-ish 
70, 80, 90, 100 grams per day. Not crazy low. Um, if somebody said, I really want in the off season to maximize body composition, but I really want to gain as much muscle as possible. That's kind of where I would theoretically have them hedge their bets. Is there an upper limit of carbohydrate intake? I know I see a lot of bodybuilders who, you know, 600, 800, thousand grams of carbs a day, they're not gaining weight. So yeah. I'm curious if you think there's, at what point does that become a point of diminishing returns and we have to, sh- we have to shift the fuel source. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I've had, you know, some guys that the highest I've had is 550 grams of carbs a day. Granted, he was doing CrossFit stuff, doing sometimes twice a day workouts. Um, And it just seems like carbohydrate usage is so variable from one person to the next. You know, and I'm sure you've probably seen the same thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I've had small female natural competitors who three, 400 grams of carbohydrates easy in the off season, weighed like a buck 30, you know, Mm -hmm. lots of muscle. But, you know, just not a very big person, definitely shorter stature. I've worked with guys twice her size that were eating half that amount of carbohydrates or they just seemed to get fat. I did. <laughs> and I mean, at the end of the day, do calories in, calories out matter? Yeah, of course, absolutely, it matters. But you're trying to ride that fine line between, yeah, I don't really want, I want to see, you know, good changes in body comp. I want enough carbohydrates so that I can train efficiently and I don't know, man. Like some people just seem to do better on lower carbs. Some people seem to do better on higher carbs. I don't know why that is. Like I, I thought for a while that it was, it's gotta be muscle mass. It's gotta be just size. And I think there is a relationship there, but I've seen just way too many outliers that yep. just completely like blow that out of the water entirely. Yep. <laughs> so you brought up, you brought up the, the magic question, calories in, calories out. And I think there's a lot of people who are on both ends of that camp, right? There's the, the, the people we'll call, um, well, without being uh, judgmental, <laughs> without being judgmental, we'll say there's the people who are only like the only thing that matters is calories and calories right. out, and uh, there's the other people who say, well, there's these other physiological implications, and and I'd love to hear with some with your amount of knowledge uh, where you sit on that continuum. Yeah, so at a base level, does physics still work? Yep, the laws of physics still apply. Now, the but caveat, it's not a closed system, right? So that that's, that's always the argument. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. That's the issue, right? So you look at Kevin Hall's study. If we take people and we shove them in a metabolic chamber and we measure everything coming in, everything coming out, all their movement, everything, does calories in, calories out work? Yeah, it works. It works every time. It works with keto, works with whatever diet you want. Now, the problem is exactly what you said. That is a completely 100% closed system. Does any free living human live in a metabolic chamber? No, maybe some physique athletes get close. But now you're in an environment where you have environmental cues. You've got people who can't really accurately, humans are horrible at accurately figuring out how many calories they ate. Um, Even when they log stuff and weigh stuff, yeah, you can definitely get a lot closer. And then it gets more messy because as you eat more, your metabolic rate changes, right? So people think that these things are all fixed in stone and they're actually coupled to each other. So calories in, calories out are both coupled to each other. So the old study from uh, the Mayo many years ago, uh, took people and said, okay, we're going to overfeed you by a thousand calories per day. And we're just going to see what happens. Don't make any changes to exercise. Just do whatever you're doing. Extra thousand calories per day. And then they predicted that, okay, they're going to gain around, you know, 13 pounds. So at the end of the study, they look at it. Yep. Some people gained around 13 pounds. Some people gained two pounds. And you're like, well, well, well wait a minute. Like, I thought you told me the calories matter. And we've got these people that only gain like two pounds. What the hell's going on? Well, the theory is that 
some of those people, when you overfeed them, their nervous system ramps up and they just start unconsciously moving around more, right? Because in the study, they told them, don't, don't change anything. Like just try to stay constant as best you can. And it's the thrifty, non-thrifty, you know, hypothesis, which has some pro and con data to it. Um, but we all know these people where like the hard gainers, where it's like you just, they, you feed them more food and they just start moving around more and just burn it off. Right. And I remember asking you know, Dr. John Berardi this question years ago. I said, yeah, I got this guy and he, we just give him more and more calories and he's not gaining any weight. Like, what do I do? <laughs> and he's like, just have him eat more because at some point he will out eat his metabolism. <laughs> so there's going to be a finite point to all of it. You see the opposite going down, right? Some people you're, and I've made this mistake, you know, competitor, they're like, you know, at 4,200 calories in the off season. I'm like, ah, your prep's going to be so easy. Woohoo! Look at me. I'm amazing. And what I screwed up was I forgot that they were almost a hyper responder. Like the second we started pulling calories out, they just adjusted like immediately. And so they started at a high point, but crap, within like, you know, a couple months, they were down pretty low. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so you've got different yeah. rate of adaptation on on both sides, too. Yeah, that was me. That was me. I, I mean, really, it's easy. I can get up over 6,500 calories and I would be lean. And then sometimes pre-contest, I get down around 2,500. And it's just like Oof. my body would just adapt like so yeah. fast. Yeah, so fast. Yeah, which I think is. It, for health and everything else is probably a benefit. Um, but for what you're doing, obviously <laughs> not a benefit. <laughs> yeah, totally. So we went through, um, coming back way back to the beginning of our chat, yeah. we went through protein and fasting as far as the two or two of the eight, um, interventions for, uh, creating physiological flexibility. Do you mind mentioning one or two more? Yeah. So for metabolic flexibility, I would say another one that people kind of forget is micronutrition, right? You mentioned calories in calories out. And, you know, so all the, you know, if it just fits your macros, bro, it's all just calories. It doesn't matter. But what a lot of that crowd forgets is you need some macros to run your body. Absolutely. You need some micros to run your body. And I think it's a little bit nearsighted to think that, yeah, if you can white knuckle your way through and deal with hunger and stay on point, you, you might be okay. But everybody knows that if you're eating food that doesn't have as much micronutrition, has less fiber you're probably just going to be a lot hungrier. And so could you, again, white knuckle your way through it and keep your calories on point? I think you can, but for most people, that's going to be a lot harder. So if you try to get more micronutrition, you're going to get more fiber. You're not going to get as many calories. You're going to feel more full. There's some hypothesis about, you know, the protein seeking hypothesis or some hypothesis about your body needs so much fat. Maybe it actually needs micronutrition. Um, but I, I do think all those things do feedback into appetite in ways we're probably don't even understand yet. Yeah. Um, I do John, think how well you use fat may even feed back into, um, appetite. It used to be called the lipostatic theory of appetite regulation, which was kind of disproven, but it makes sense to me that if you're a survival based organism and you have the ability to use more fat as an energy source. I've just noticed over time that you can cut their calories a little bit more and they just don't go stir crazy. Uh, the people that had the hardest time were, I think, more on the carbohydrate end of, of the spectrum. So. Right. And so, again, this is, I didn't want to go here, but this is, that's a question that comes up. Like, how much of that is influenceable, right? So, when I think of someone right. who's, who's not going to go stir crazy when they're uh, in a calorically depleted state, is someone who has good control of their, their nervous system, right? They're not chronically stressed, their cortisol is not chronically elevated, they're not chronically yep. sympathetic. 
their brain, I mean, maybe better CO2 tolerance, maybe they're at the lower respiration rate sure. at rest. They're just going to tend to be better fat oxidizers, you know, better adjusted when um, you remove their calories. There's also probably a ghrelin response where, as you said, like you have to yep. slowly subject them to greater durations of time between meals. But uh, is that a, a big factor or is it mostly genetics in your, in your perspective? I mean, I would agree with you. That's just kind of what I've noticed, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just the, and I hate to use the word more healthy, right? The more yeah. healthy people sure. were, the less their stress was do calories in calories out? Does it still matter? Yeah. Sure. But I just noticed it was just easier for them to do. Yeah. Right. Cause at the end of the day, you're talking about it's going to be compliance. Right. And those people just that you could cut their calories a little bit and they would adjust and they're, they're okay. They would keep losing weight. Totally. Their stress wasn't too high. Their sleep was good. Like all their blood markers are normally good. It was just, it was just easier for them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you listen to Dr. Huberman's podcast at all, but he yes. recently did a podcast on appetite where he spoke about the, the negative effects of fat emulsifiers on satiety. And I thought that was really mm. interesting. So apparently the, the fat emulsifiers make these these neurons in the stomach almost like retract and uh, take away the, the hunger or the satiety signals, right? So if you you're consuming fat emulsifiers, which is in basically every processed food that exists. Right. These these neurons that are normally going to tell you that you're full and you're satisfied, they're going to retract and, and almost uh, allow you unconsciously or encourage you unconsciously to eat more. That was a really interesting thing. That so if we're talking about controlling your hunger. I don't know if you've seen that study, but worth looking at. No, definitely um, want to look at it though. Yeah. So he mentioned it in his recent podcast, maybe two or three weeks ago on appetite control and very cool. thyroid and appetite control. Yeah. Worth yeah. At I that. love his stuff. He's got a lot of really good stuff. He's brilliant. Super legit dude too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant. And, uh, you know, always data driven. And I thought that was great. And I think it really goes against the, the if it fits your macros crowd of like, Hey, you just got to hit your macros. Well, if you're eating things that are processed, we know there's fat emulsifiers in there. You're going to be more likely to want to overeat. And that was, uh, you know, well, I haven't looked at the data itself. I haven't looked at the research study to see if it's, you know, but I'm sure if he's citing it, it's probably pretty legitimate. Yeah. And on the flip side too, like people who think that, oh, I got to have the perfect macros like 100% of the time, that worries me too. Totally. Like, What do you do at a social engagement? Like you're not going to have a slice of birthday cake because, you know, and I get it if you're pre-contest and you, you you know, that kind of stuff, I get it. But for someone to say that that's how I'm going to live the rest of my life, it's like, yeah, that's a little bit too of a fragile approach uh, to me, right? So if, you're good at buffering calories and substrates if you're more metabolically flexible, then I think you're probably going to be fine. Right. Mm-hmm. And those things by definition are more of a, a rare occurrence. I'm not saying, you know, eat 15 pop tarts every day, you know, but if you're afraid of certain foods, you don't really have any weird intolerance or anything that you can associate with it. That makes me a little nervous too. Like I think you're a little bit too fragile in some of your thinking. Yeah. I think one of the best takeaways from today's chat is the understanding that if you eat an abundance of carbohydrate, your body will upregulate oxidation. If you eat an abundance of fat, it won't. I think that's a huge takeaway that I want to kind of zero in on there for the audience. So because that's massive. And I find that totally uncertain. Two or three days a week, I'll do, usually two days a week, I'll do a higher amount of carbohydrate. I almost always wake up the next day leaner. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, that's interesting. So you overeat fats and kind of doesn't do anything. It's not a good thing. Every carbohydrates in your body can upregulate oxidation, which is uh, super interesting. So thanks for that, Mike. Yeah. And also what you probably noticed too, is that I think carbohydrates are probably better at buffering stress, right? Because insulin is going to be kind of the anti-hormone to a lot Mm -hmm. of the stress hormones. So again, people take that a little bit too far and they kind of eat their feelings, but 
I've done that with a couple of people where they're like, oh, my weight's not dropping. I'm like, okay, I want you to have like an extra 70 grams of carbohydrates at dinner. They're like, what? You're a crazy man. I'm not going to do this. I'm like, just do it. You'll be fine. One, it's not going to convert to make you fat. Even if 100% of that went through DNL, through the liver, converted to fat, it's still minimal. So don't worry about it. Not going to happen. And pretty much like clockwork. Every day they get up the next morning, like, oh, I got on the scale. I'm like, I'm like two pounds lighter and I look better. I'm like, yeah, because you're stressed out of your mind all the other time. <laughs> totally. So what areas are you studying most now, Mike? And what are you most interested about in uh, as far as like what you've discovered over the last couple of months? Yeah, so a couple of things still looking at some of the metabolic heart measurements, some of the moxie measurements, the CO2 stuff, you know, like what's what's going on there? How do people regulate exercise? And what I think is that people use slightly different strategies almost probably every day, right? So to think that your brain is going to figure out the best strategy to maximize exercise today and it's going to do that the rest of its life, probably not true. I think there's mm -hmm. more variability in that than what we realize. And then related to uh, physiologic flexibility, what are things that we can then target and stress that our body has to hold normal, like temperature? And I think if we stress them correctly, we can expand that uh, buffer zone, what's called adaptive homeostasis. And that will confer a fair amount of health benefits. And to me, that's like the next level after your exercise and nutrition is pretty good, you're on point, like what would be the next things to target, right? So things like temperature, CO2, oxygen, blood glucose, maybe even make an argument for doing ketogenic system as like a backup to your metabolism and then also pH. Right, so pH you can get out with breath work, both uh, breath holds, hyperventilation methods, uh, high intensity interval training. And I think the more we target those systems, we're not really expecting like pH or core temperature to change that much. We're expanding our kind of buffer zone around them. And I think that that'll serve a fair amount of health benefits. And there's a super interesting thing that no one really talks about called a cross adaptation effect, where they took people and they said, okay, we're going to expose you to one cold water, uh, I think it was cold water immersion exposure. And then we're going to put you in a hypoxic environment. One group gets cold water immersion. The other group does not. You both get shoved in the same hypoxic, so low oxygen environment, which is a massive stressor for humans for good reason. What they found was the people who had the cold water immersion, they were more tolerant of the hypoxic environment. Like, holy crap, to me, that's amazing. Like it was cold water. It wasn't hypoxia. It had nothing to do with oxygen, had nothing to do with CO2, completely different mechanism, but both of those are homeostatic regulators. So my bias is I think as we train those more, we'll find more of these kind of cross adaptation effects where we train this thing and yeah, we got better at the thing, but we see a positive transfer to a bunch of different areas that we probably haven't even looked at yet. That's awesome. So for everyone listening, I am a paying customer of Dr. Mike's courses. Which was very nice. I appreciate dude, that. I, I, I want, I want to be honored. Uh, no, man, I want to learn because you're, you're doing this stuff. You're in the trenches. You're not only are you reading the textbooks and the studies, but you're actually doing your own research. And I'm so grateful that you are willing to take the time to put out these courses. And I think everyone listening should go out, pick up the flex diet course, pick up the physiological flexibility course and dive into it. You do such a great job of condensing down the valuable information and giving actionable items uh, that anyone who's a coach or not, you just want to optimize your physique. Um, Mike, where do they find those courses? Yeah, so the best place uh, for both of them is through the Flex Diet site, which is flexdiet.com. 
F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. They'll be able to go up to the wait list on the top. Uh, that'll put them on the semi-daily newsletter. And once they're on the newsletter, they'll have all the updates for both courses. And they can just hit reply there and tell me you heard me on the show and we'll send them a cool free gift too. So oh, amazing. Uh, flexdiet.com. Buddy, I'm eternally grateful for your time and your wisdom and, and thank you for doing what you do. Um, I, I'm a student and I will continue to learn from you as, as long as you'll allow me. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's always great to chat. I appreciate all the super intelligent questions and it's always fun to speculate. And uh, yeah, it's always a good time. Thanks, <laughs> That's a wrap. Looking gents, thanks so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I know Mike T. Nelson loves being a guest on the show because he gets such great responses from you. So if you're not already following Mike on social media, head over and do that now. If you're interested in some of his certifications, go to the flexdiet.com. Not the flexdiet, it's just flexdiet.com. It's an incredible course and his physiological flexibility course is another phenomenal course, which is all very much data-driven. Mike pulls all the great research, reviews it, and discusses it with us here in the course. And I'm a customer, a paying customer of Mike's physiological flexibility course. Absolutely love it. And I truly feel honored and privileged every time he comes back to share his wealth and his new experiences with us on the show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere where you find the greatest podcast in the world so we can continue to bring you the best information, the best guests, and the best offers from our amazing sponsors. Thank you very much to Real Mushrooms for sponsoring this podcast, realmushrooms.com slash Ben. We'll get you hooked up. 30% off. You can't beat that. Nobody's beating that offer. That's incredible. Not only that, but they're giving you the highest quality mushrooms, guys. And you should care about what goes into your body because it matters. It's not just about what goes in. It's quality. Quality before quantity. Have an amazing day. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. Have an amazing day, guys. You have your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.